According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth this morning comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Isaiah, and we come to Isaiah chapter 64. Isaiah 64 this morning, 12 verses to cover. I think we'll do all right with that. We got through 19 verses last week, although Communion Sunday does tend to run shorter than other Sundays. Isaiah 64, approaching the end of the book, I tell you, just uh, this week and two more to go, 65 and 66, we've got these beautiful glimpses of the new heavens and the new earth, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ as revealed to the prophet Isaiah. First, though, we have the final prayers that are offered in the tribulational repentance, what has brought Israel to recognize that the Christ they're hoping for is the Christ they crucified, and they need to call upon the Christ they crucified to come and to save them. And uh, the issues there, as uh, we got introduced to it in chapter 63 uh, last week, I'll mention that briefly, and then we'll move on ahead this morning into the 12 verses of Isaiah 64. Before we get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask that God would bless our time of study, that he would set aside distractions, that he would humble us under the authority of eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessings that we have, Father. Blessings in time, blessings in eternity. I thank you for the provision that's ours in Christ because of his faithfulness to accomplish what we could not do. Father, I thank you that he went to the cross, that he accepted our wrath in his place, that he took our wrath, Father. And on his basis, Father, we can now stand before you. We can study to show ourselves approved. We can be brought into your courts. We can brought into your understanding. And Father, I pray that you would make known to us on this day the truth of your word. I thank you for your faithfulness, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down at the mountain, uh, the mountains quaked at your presence. For from days of old they have not heard nor perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you, who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you are angry, for we sinned. We continued in them a long time, and shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. All right, here's the opening prayer of the chapter. It's actually uh, the third out of four prayers that are being uttered 
uh, prophetically by Isaiah in chapter 63 and 64, and then eschatologically, these are the prayers that are going to be uttered by Israel in the coming tribulation. The nation of Israel will understand the nature of their uh, crucifying the Christ and the reasons why they have been given over to the hands of the Gentiles, the reasons why they have seen such a long delay in the coming of the kingdom, the kingdom that was at, that was at hand when John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, that was 2,000 years ago. What happened? Why is it no longer at hand, or why has it been no longer at hand since Matthew chapter 12? Why the great hinge in the ministry of Jesus Christ? Why did he stop preparing the disciples for the coming kingdom, and he started preparing his disciples for the coming cross? As the Jewish people rejected their Messiah, and as the kingdom has now been delayed for this period of time. And so we're in the midst of this. Now, Last week, we gave you kind of an outline for how the rest of the book unfolds, and this is the nature of it. Remember, in chapter 62, there were watchmen on the wall, and Israel was called to be in prayer, and Israel was called to be on the alert and to be ready for the coming of their Messiah. And then in chapter 3, we saw Jesus marching in his victory, in his conquest, his robes were spattered with blood because he has been treading the winepress of the wrath of God. And so the table is set. Israel is watchful in prayer. Jesus Christ is going forth to do battle. The table is set to bring the tribulation to a close and to bring in the millennial kingdom. And that is then the context for the rest of chapter three, uh, 63 and 64 and on into the end of the book in chapter 65 and 66. And so we kind of gave the outline here and demonstrated that there are four hymns being composed, psalms that are being written, prayers that are being uttered, four discourses that Isaiah himself is uttering. And uh, they, they comprise of the last two parts of chapter 63 and then both halves here of chapter 64. And these are Isaiah's prayers. Isaiah saw this seven centuries before Christ. Isaiah was uttering these prayers, but this concept, this doctrine, has to be understood by Israel in the coming tribulation. This is a part of their repentance. They must call upon Jesus Christ, the Messiah whom they crucified. They have to call upon him so as to be saved. And so we dealt with the first two of the uh, discourses last week, and we're going to cover the second two of them this week, verses 1 through 7, which I just read is the first of this week's, the third out of the four altogether. But understand, the presence of the Lord is an issue of absolute righteousness. The presence of the Lord is an issue of absolute righteousness. And they have to come to grips with the absolute righteousness of God and how it is provided for them. And the relative righteousness of their own religion. The relative righteousness even of Pharisaic Judaism that doesn't measure up. The recognition is when the king comes, his kingdom is going to be a kingdom of righteousness. And for the unrighteous, even if they're Jewish, they will not enter the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ because his kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness, you see. And much of this, I think, we can relate to, we understand, because when he came in his first advent, what happened? John the Baptist came preaching repentance and he came preaching righteousness warning the Pharisees that, that uh, they weren't going to be entering into this kingdom because righteousness has to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. And they didn't want that message. 
<laughs> Even uh, some of his disciples didn't want that message. They, they wanted a political deliverance. They wanted to kick off the bonds of Rome. They wanted to bring in a great Jewish kingdom. But repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Or the righteousness that, that John the Baptist was preaching or that Jesus was preaching. They didn't, they didn't care for a message of righteousness. They wanted a political deliverance. So I think similar to people today that want political victory at a ballot box, but they aren't praying over the true repentance of our nation and believers to be walking in the Word of God. So different issues there. Don't get me sidetracked or I'll start preaching a political message here this morning. But our country's salvation will not come electorally, not in the ballot box. Uh, the, the ballot box. Did I say battle box? Wow. But believers need to get serious about the Word of God. And pastors need to quit being entertainers in, in the light and fluffy approach. They need to be feeding their flock with the hard-hitting truth of the Word of God. Then, perhaps, the grace of God will spare this nation. All right, well, it's an issue of absolute righteousness. And he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Now, there's a difference. Because when he came in first advent, he didn't rend the heavens and come down. He actually came very quietly. He actually came very humbly. He came, he was born of a virgin. He was born in a Bethlehem stall. He came with a kenosis. If you ever do study the doctrine of kenosis from Philippians chapter 2, you'll be very blessed to study that doctrine out. Unlike Jesus' first advent, without the kenosis of God the Son, the second advent of Jesus Christ will rend the heavens the very fabric of the heavens is going to be rent. Stars are going to fall. There will be uh, physical differences made in the galaxies as the, the heavens themselves are rent. The first and second heavens are rent as Jesus Christ enters into creation with no more kenosis, okay? No more of the emptying of himself. In, in first advent, he came humbly. He came quietly. He came in, uh, as we see, because he came to suffer and to die and to redeem us. Second advent, he is not laying aside any privileges. He is coming in power and great glory. He is coming in the full might of his majesty and his glory. And proximity to glory is a problem for those who don't share in his glory. All right, understand that. Do you want to be too close to a blast furnace? Do you want to be too close? Uh, the, the glory of Jesus Christ is going to be far greater than any fiery furnace that Daniel's three friends were thrown into. All right? To be close to the proximity of that glory. When there were slight glimpses of that glory, the disciples would fall over. John saw a picture of that glory in a vision on the Isle of Patmos, and he fell over like a dead man. Imagine the glory of God when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. And so it's described here in this way, with earthquakes and, and so forth, that the mountains might quake at your presence. What causes mountains to quake? What causes volcanoes to erupt? What causes these, uh, these great earthquakes? Well, how about a fallen creation in the presence of the glory of their Creator? As fire kindles as the, uh, the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil. I mean, that's just what happens. What happens when you apply heat to that pot of water? It's going to boil. What's going to happen in creation when the Son of God in full unveiled glory goes forth to war? Imagine that. Well, Isaiah is imagining it for us right here. 
and uh, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. You know, if you go back to the Old Testament and you read the history of the Exodus and the history of when God redeemed His people, He made His glory known to Egypt, to one nation, all <laughs> right? And the neighboring nations kind of saw that. And neighboring nations, they weren't the objects of God's wrath. They weren't the direct recipients of God's dealings with them. He was dealing with one nation, one nation only. He was humbling Egypt to redeem Israel. But the neighboring nations saw that and were... You know, they were, they were scared willy out of their uh, senses over those things. All right? Second advent? He's not just dealing with Egypt. He's not just dealing with a single nation. He is going to deal with every Gentile nation on this planet because every Gentile nation is assembled together against the Jews, against Israel, and in defiance of the second advent of Jesus Christ. We had little clues of that last week when we were talking about the Armageddon campaign and talking about why does Antichrist gather all the armies of the world at a place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon? Why? He is gathering them together for the, the great day of the war of God Almighty. He is attempting to stop the second advent of Jesus Christ. Okay? Well, good luck with that. Again, I would encourage you to go to Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to save time today and not go there, but read the kenosis. Read how he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. He was found in the likeness of fallen man. He humbled himself to come in first advent. There won't be shepherds in a manger and uh, Christmas hymns at the second advent of Jesus Christ. All right? He is coming in power and great glory to conquer. And... Uh, the issues there. Earthquakes are frightening enough, but the second advent of Jesus Christ will feature a universe quake. All right? I had to modify the uh, dictionary there. Microsoft didn't like universe quake as a, as a real word. I added it to my spell check dictionary. All right? It is a universe quake. He is going to shake the heavens and the earth in an amazing way. And all the kings are going to, and the Gentiles are going to crawl into holes in the ground. They're going to try to hide. Um, they are just overwhelmed at these things. Hebrews 12 deals with this. And what we come to, and the blessings of what we come to. In a contrast, if I really wanted to take the time, not just 25 through 29, but read 18 through 24 in Hebrews chapter 12. Because there's a contrast there with Sinai. The, the, the Jewish people that went to Mount Sinai and then all the, the, the terror that was there, the blazing fire and the darkness and gloom and whirlwind, the blast of a trumpet, and they were terrified at the bottom of Mount Sinai. And yet you and I, we come to the heavenly Zion and, and uh, the blessings there. Thankfully we do. And then we get to verse 25 of Hebrews 12. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth... How much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? In other words, the, the tribulational accountability is so much more severe for those who rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ during the church age. All right. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised saying, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. All right, and we have a quote here from Haggai. No one ever reads Haggai because that's a minor prophet and it's in a part of the Bible no one pays attention to, but we better, all right? Haggai chapter 2, we better pay attention to it 
because it comes center stage in the book of Hebrews looking forward to Israel and the tribulation, looking forward to the wrath of God on this earth and the glory of Jesus Christ when he comes to conquer and this universe quake that's going to take place. Continuing in Hebrews here, this is a commentary on Haggai or Haggai depending on how you pronounce his name. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Let's, uh, let's forget about these earthly empires. Let's go to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And you and I are already a part of that kingdom, having been delivered into the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God as a consuming fire. All right, the application that the author of Hebrews is making is that that very same God who's coming in tribulational wrath is the very same God we answer to day by day in how we conduct our Christian walk. All right, so we better conduct ourselves in fear and trembling upon this earth. And so there's the uh, Hebrews application there. You go back to Haggai and you have uh, a little bit more of an expansion. The shaking of the heavens and the shaking of the earth. Oh, goodness. Um, Let me grab that. I can find Haggai quickly enough. There we go. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. All right, in Haggai chapter 2, almost the entire chapter, I listed verses 1 through 9 and then the, the... Follow up to that at the end, verses 21 through 23. But read through this, and in particular, um, boy, I could spend weeks on this, because this is a promise to Zerubbabel, the, the promise to the humble, the humble servant Zerubbabel, who brings the captives back from Babylon and does not take David's throne, cannot take David's throne. He's entitled to David's throne, but he is humble to not take it. He rules as a, as, a, as a Persian prince, as a, as a governor, not as a, the son of David on the throne of David. But understand, Zerubbabel will be the signet ring. Okay, The, the final uh, verse in Haggai. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And Zerubbabel, of course, was contemporary as Haggai is delivering this message. What a, what a powerful message. In any event, this is what we're looking forward to. Not just an earthquake, a universe quake. The heavens and the earth affected. The heavenly host cast down the great warfare that's coming at Armageddon. Proximity to such glory is awesome. Proximity to such glory is awesome. And the idea, too, I think that we maybe lose sight of this. We get too familiar in our church age relationship and we lose a sense of the fear of the Lord with this over-familiarity shortfall. But proximity to such glory is awesome. Take off your shoes, Moses, you're approaching holy ground. Or uh, the, the Lord himself descending to Sinai in Exodus chapter 20 and putting a boundary around so that not even your animals might accidentally step on that mountain. The admonitions that are given there in Exodus chapter 20. I think we're familiar with this so we can save some time on this regard. But just consider... 
As he entered into judgment with them at Sinai, he will enter into judgment with them again at his second advent. And there is a reason to tremble before the glory of God when he comes to judge. All right. Anyway, Exodus chapter 20 in these verses, 18 through 21. Um, you have the listing of the Ten Commandments, and then all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood away at a distance. All right. And in, in a sense, this is a, actually a failure on the part of Israel. They should have identified what is fearsome and drawn near anyway, but they didn't. They said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. And so they, they demanded Moses be the intermediary between them and see what they should have done when they seen the, the thunder and the wrath and the, the fear of the Lord approach, they should have drawn near anyway to embrace him because he is their God and, and they are his people. All right. They didn't do that at Sinai. Thankfully, they will do that at Second Advent. They will do that in the, in the Great Tribulation as that wrath approaches. They will embrace the only one who can deliver them. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order to fear that, that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. Now they're going to fail here at Sinai at the Exodus, but they're going to pass this test at Second Advent. They will draw near to the awesome majesty of Jesus Christ. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. And there's the consequence there. You get over to chapter 33 and it comes up again in a passage that makes me laugh. Isaiah 33, verses 20 through 23. Anyway, there's some of these. And, you know, the Lord is drawing near and they're to sanctify themselves, they're to make themselves holy. Uh, there's even one verse... I'm not going to spot it here where he says, don't go near a woman, you know, because they don't even want to violate the ceremonial cleanness that they, uh, that's required of them to approach the holiness of God. Anyway, this is where God puts Moses in a little cleft of the rock and covers him with his hand. And uh, we, we sing hymns about this, right? He puts us in the cleft of the rock and covers me there with his hand. And we get to catch a glimpse of his backside as he walks past, all right? Because you can't see his face. No one can see my face and live. But while my glory is passing by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away. You shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And that's, that's the limit of what Moses got to see there. All right? Not true in Second Advent. In Second Advent, they're going to be face to face with Jesus Christ, the conqueror who comes in all of his glory to wreak the vengeance upon the rebellion and to deliver the Jewish people into the kingdom of righteousness. Finally, a church-age text in 1 Timothy 6.16, part of the great paradox that is the body of Christ. I love these conundrums. In some respects, a mocker, an unbeliever, a Bible skeptic, a God-hater might look at these verses and say, well, they contradict, they're nonsensical. How can you believe any of this stuff? I just, I, I eat it up. I love it. I embrace every last one of them. To me, they are sanctified paradoxes in some respects. 1 Timothy 6.16 talks about you and I and our Savior. What a great title here. I, uh, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. 
you and I have to stand and confess in front of whoever we're called to confess in front of, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We better stay faithful, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. You see what the proximity to glory is all about? And to me, this is an amazing passage. He dwells in unapproachable light, but what do we do? We approach. That's right. We're partakers. We are children of light as well. He dwells in unapproachable light, and if I try to approach in my human effort, I'm not going to make it. That light's going to expose my filthy rags, my unrighteousness, and I'll be incinerated. But when I trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life, I become a child of light. And then the unapproachable is very approachable because He brings me to Him. I am brought to the Father. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so this expression, unapproachable light, it's like the unfathomable riches of Christ. But guess what? We get to fathom the unfathomable riches of Christ. We get to approach the unapproachable light. Oh, these are the, I call them the, the, the conundrums or the paradoxes of the body of Christ and the church. And they're beautiful. Everyone you see is a beautiful thing. Who no man has seen or can see. Well, guess what? We do. Right now we do through the scriptures. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. If you have the whole counsel of the Word of God, we have the full vision, the face-to-face vision with God Himself. But at second advent, faith will become sight and we will be there directly with our Lord and our Savior. Anyway, proximity to such glory is awesome. And best of all, it's a feature of our current church age. It's a feature. Israel Israel's waiting for a coming glory. Israel is sad that the glory departed, the glory of God departed from the temple, and they've been in Ichabod sadness ever since. And they're waiting for their glory to return as terrible as it's going to be for them. They're waiting for the glory to return. But you and I already walk in that glory. That glory is characteristic of our daily life in Christ. You talk about a contrast between Israel and the church. I I don't think there's a sharper one you can draw than waiting for a coming glory versus walking in a present abiding glory. To me, that's, uh, that's huge. Secondly, so not only is this a fearsome return, but also the wisdom of God will unfold to the amazement of angelic and human observation. Isaiah 64, 4. What eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man, the wisdom of God will unfold before men and angels alike, manifesting the glory of His wisdom. Isaiah 64, 4. From days of old. By the way, that precedes Adam. This is a Mekmalam idiom that goes back to even prior to humanity. This goes back to Satan and the fallen world of the angels and the rebellion there. From days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you. And that satanic liar who said, I will be like the Most High God, he doesn't count either. None of these fallen angels can, can replicate the wisdom of God in putting forth a volitional plan that redeems even with the expression of negative volition, rebellion against Him. 
nor has the eye seen a God beside you who acts in behalf of the one, the one and only, Jesus Christ, the one who waits for him. Last hour we were talking about waiting, why it's a benefit to wait. Why we get saved so that we can wait for the Son of Man to be revealed from heaven. We get saved and we live out our Christian life waiting for the trumpet to sound and living godly day by day in the meantime. Well, God himself is waiting and he's waiting for the one who's waiting for him. That is the Father waiting to glorify Jesus Christ. Obviously, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-9, through 9, the Apostle Paul directly quotes this text and he brings it into an application that we can recognize. The wisdom of God, I love this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the wisdom of God that makes the world's wisdom foolishness. Why am I going to compromise my faith to embrace a world viewpoint? My faith is the wisdom of God. The world viewpoint is foolishness before the wisdom of God. And when Paul wrote this book, he was kind of at a low point in his career, depressed and discouraged. He said, I was with you in fear and in weakness and in much trembling. I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You get to a pretty low point in your, in your ministry when you can say, well, hey, I'm saved. <laughs> I don't know what my church is like or my marriage or my family or whatever else, but I know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Okay, so it's definitely a low point in Paul's ministry. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And notice, we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. And again, we're we're beyond humanity here. We're talking about angels. We're talking about the fallen angels that run this place. We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. You know, he had this plan in effect before there was any humans around. This this was the plan he announced to the angels and Satan didn't like it and a third of the angels didn't like it. They followed after Satan figuring there's a better plan. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Boy, I spent a month praying about that verse. Meditate on it. Chew on it. And in, in, in every single one of us in this room can look back to a choice we made that we regretted later because we learned something too late. And if we'd have known it at the time, we wouldn't have done it. Right? Satan's that way. If he'd have known about it, he wouldn't have done it. If he would have understood the wisdom of God and the plan of God, Satan would not have put Jesus on that cross. It says, if they would have understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. See, the Apostle Paul, uh, he studied Isaiah 64. He knew what this was all about. What a powerful message. Which has not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him, starting with Jesus Christ. God the Son who so loved the Father that he obediently went to the cross. You and I are partakers of that love in Christ. We are those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. So to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. You and I get to learn this doctrine this morning, not because we're so smart to figure it out, 
but because God is so faithful to lead us into these things. He's, he's blessing His Son by blessing us. What a delight. So the wisdom of God is going to unfold with the amazement of angelic and human observation. You know, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, including those that it's too late, they're going to hell. All right. God is going to act on behalf of His righteous one. Why is He saving Israel? Is it for Israel's sake? It's for Jesus Christ's sake. All right, they didn't earn it or deserve it. Any more than you deserve your salvation either. God's acting on behalf of His Son. And since you're in Christ, you get to go to heaven. But it's not for your sake, it's for His Son's sake. And so we see in Isaiah 64, 5, you meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness. Well, who does that? None of us, that's for sure. But for Jesus Christ, you bet. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right here. And God the Father meets him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Even when he was hanging on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He stopped and he said, yet you are my God. I have trusted upon you since I was upon my mother's breast. Jesus Christ remembers God the Father in all his ways. And so that is who Jesus, that's who God the Father rules on behalf of. He rules on behalf of Jesus Christ in Armageddon. And Israel benefits because Christ is coming to serve them as he came to serve us in his first advent. Behold, uh, you were angry for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. Shall we be saved? You know, Israel and their unbelief. Israel having crucified the Christ. Israel being given over to the Gentiles. Shall we yet be saved? Look at what we've done. Well, thankfully, grace is not about what we've done or what we've earned and deserved. All of us have become like one who is unclean. See, the nation has to come to the filthy garments application. The nation has to recognize what minus R is about and what plus R is about and how all of their righteousness is filthy rags. They need the righteousness of Jesus Christ or Israel will never receive the millennial kingdom or the throne of David on this earth. All right. God will act on behalf of His righteous one. We've seen this before, by the way. We've seen this before. Uh, this is a feature in Psalm 22. This is a feature in Psalm 24. This is a feature in Philippians 3, verses 8 and 9. Let me grab... See, if you don't get... The, oh, this is beautiful. I want to bring Ralph to town. Ralph's got a series of messages. Pastor Ralph Braun... He's got a series of messages in Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24. And he shows the powerful sequence from one to the next to the next and how connected they are. And I think we all know Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. Well, why can't he be my shepherd? Because he went to the cross in Psalm 22. All right. And then what's coming up in Psalm 24? The kingdom, the millennium, the glory but only because of Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 and Psalm 24. It's a, it's a great sequence. Psalm 22, 8. You notice that we're mocking him. He's on the cross. They're, they're wagging the lip. They're taunting him. They're, they're separating with the lip. They're wagging the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. The very thing they're taunting Jesus Christ. 
If the Father loves you, the Father will save you. The Father will get you off that cross. That's the taunt they use while he's hanging on the cross. And they're making the very point that God himself will make two chapters later. Is that yes, the Father does delight in the Son. And it's a good thing the Father does delight in the Son. Because that's why you're going to get a kingdom. Because the Father delights in the Son. And so it's a great... uh, It's a great doctrine to study here in this regard. Jesus Christ is very pleased to do the work of the cross and look forward to the testimony he's going to have when it's all over. So in Psalm 22, you see in verses 22 and following, I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You talk about faith, you're hanging on the cross and you're saying, when this is over, I will praise you. In all that testing. So we get through Psalm 23, we get to Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And we're going to see the faithfulness of Jesus Christ because he went to the cross. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who is God going to look upon with favor? Who is waiting for the Lord anyway? That's who the Father is going to reward. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, that's not me, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, has not sworn deceitfully, that's not me. None of us measures up, but Jesus Christ does. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. All right, so the kingdom. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O Israel, uh, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? (laughs) The one that went to the cross and gave himself in our place. You and I don't deserve this. Israel doesn't deserve this. God is going to act on behalf of his righteous one because no human righteousness can measure up. Anything you think is good, he says it's menstrual rags in Isaiah chapter 64. And uh, Paul says it's garbage. Count it but loss in Philippians chapter 3. Then the second half of the chapter The clay calls out to the potter for his good pleasure. Isaiah 64, verses 8 through 12. The clay calls out to the potter for his good pleasure. Finally, the clay is humbled enough to do this. Prior to this, prior to tribulation, the clay is usually pretty arrogant and boastful. And uh, the clay loves to tell the potter what he thinks the potter ought to do. The clay likes to disagree with the potter on on a lot of issues. But tribulation will humble Israel to the point that the clay will say, look, Lord, we're just clay. All right, and if you're going to make us into a new pot, only you can do this because uh, we're (laughs) stiff-necked. We're rebels. The history of Israel has been one rebellion after another after another with occasional repentance scattered here here and there. So Isaiah 64, verses 8 through 12. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, you are our potter. All of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our precious things have become a ruin. Jerusalem is given over to Antichrist. It's trampled for 42 months. 
for time, times, and half a time. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? And the emphasis here in this paragraph, in case you missed it, is this idea of beyond measure, beyond measure. All right? What is it that God will not do beyond measure? What is it that he can do without measure? All right? What is it that he will not test us? Right? Beyond measure. He never tests us beyond what we are able to bear. What will he not do beyond measure? What is, what is God's limit? When does he cut himself off? When does he draw the line? When does he stop? When does he say the God who cannot lie or the God who cannot forget, who knows all things, chooses not to remember our sins? All right. What is it that he forgives? What is it that he chooses not to remember? How long does he hold our sins against us when he disciplines us? Not forever. All right. Because he's quick to forgive. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. If you have never done a potter and clay study, I recommend this one. Because it does maintain the creator-creature distinction. It's always good to identify the creator-creature distinction. All right? And you are, in case you haven't caught on, you are a creature. In fact, twice over. Because in Christ, you're a new creation. And so you have to deal with your creator in two ways, all right? The natural, physical way of your physical existence, but better than that, the, the, the spiritual life that you have in Christ, now that you are a new creation in Christ. But the potter and clay doctrine, it's found here. Uh, we had it already in, in chapter 29. We had it uh, also in chapter 45. On previous occasions, we've had potter and clay references. It comes up in Jeremiah. In fact, in Jeremiah, the potter and the potter's field are going to be significant. They're going to be significant um, eschatologically. They're going to be significant in the first advent of Jesus Christ because the 30 pieces of silver the, the trader gets, they go to purchase the potter's field. And uh, that's not just a story told in the Gospels. That's a story told in Jeremiah. It's told in Zechariah. It's told in the Old Testament prophets. The idea of a potter's field also in terms of a valley of judgment because in, in human terms, if, a pot, if, a, if a, a pot is smashed, it's not good for anything else. Throw it in the heap. And in the heap of judgment, you have a valley of topheth that becomes a valley of judgment for uh, destruction in the tribulation. So uh, take a look at Isaiah, the references that you see there. 64, 8, 29, 16, 45, 9. Jeremiah 18, verses 2 through 6. Jeremiah 19, verses 1 through 3. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul develops this in Romans chapter 9, verses 20 through 24. Israel has a future in spite of the judgment God is presently putting them under. God's anger has a measure beyond which he will not go. Thank God for that. If his anger had no limit, no, his grace has no limit. <laughs> his love has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto man. But his anger, he does have a limit. And God himself measures it. God himself chops it off and makes it finite or none of us would stand. God's anger has a measure beyond which he will not go. Twice it's spoken of here, verse 9 and verse 12. In the Exodus, it was mentioned in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. 
that He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He is quick to forgive. One of the most, in fact, one of the most commonly repeated descriptions of God Himself is this one right here. Exodus 34, verse 6 and verse 7. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. Why does he limit his wrath to the third and the fourth generations? How much more patience does he have with this nation? All right. And yet he's promised blessings to a thousand generations of those who love Jesus Christ in the new heavens and on the new earth. Jeremiah 3, verses 12 through 14. Goodness. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. He chooses to limit the application of his anger. His anger is not beyond limit. It is very limited. And thankfully so. He says, Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. You have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you, and I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart. So this is uh, what God's looking for. His wrath is always geared towards our repentance. Finally, my favorite, Micah 7. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah, chapter 7. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in chesed, in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and chesed to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from days of old. What a promise. God's anger has a measure beyond which he will not go. His grace has no measure beyond which he cannot go. His grace has no measure beyond which he cannot go. So when you study that his anger has a measure and his grace has no measure, what a, what a comfort, huh? And what a wake-up call. This is what Israel will cling to as a nation in the tribulation. Their only hope is that God's wrath has a measure and that the one who endures to the end will be saved that Israel has a hope of their national deliverance when their Messiah returns to lead them to this victory. Psalm 89, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14. Psalm 136, verses 1 through 26. All 26 verses of that psalm. It's beautiful. It's my divine license for redundancy and repetition. All right. 
we have reached the top of the hour and we, we do need to break for communion, but um, I'll keep going until I see. Is Molly coming back for the piano? Okay. Psalm 89. Big day today. We got communion. We got business meeting. And I may not stop preaching till two. This is, uh, this is fun stuff. Preaching the unlimited grace of God. How do I stop preaching that? It's eternal. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. It is without limit. It is eternal. Chesed never ends. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 14. Chesed never ends. Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. If He did that, we're all doomed. Thankfully, even when we're under discipline, it's less than we deserve. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His chesed toward those who fear Him. As the east, far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgression from us. His anger has limit, but His grace has no limit. What, a, what, a, what an infinite east is west. That's an infinite direction. Finally, Psalm 136, verses 1-26. through 26. Should I read the whole psalm or just half the psalm? I can just read half the psalm if I read the last half of every verse in the psalm. Notice in verse 1, Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His loving kindness is everlasting. Notice the second half of every verse says the same exact thing. His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. 26 times. Can you get the point? (laughs) I mean, a slow guy like me, I'm as thick as I am. I can get something like that gets pounded into my head. And I realize, man, how long does His loving kindness last? Yeah. Do Do I ever exhaust His chesed loving kindness? When I go to Him and I confess my sins, does He ever stop and say, enough of that, I'm done with you? Why is He faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness? Because His loving kindness is everlasting. I never exhaust the grace of God. None of us do. His loving kindness is everlasting. Father, I just thank You for the message of Isaiah. I thank You for Your truth. I thank you for this great hope. Israel will learn this lesson someday. We are learning this lesson even now. I thank you, Father, for the blessings that we have in Christ, the, uh, the living hope that we walk in, the hope that Israel is waiting for. I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding, Father, to understand the, proph- the prophecies for what they are, to understand the timetable, to understand our place in it. Thank you, Father, for the, the powerful message we have in Christ for the glory of Isaiah to make these things clear. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.